0: Hi, and welcome to the Rochester Public Power Hour. You are listening to our theme music provided courtesy of Vivid Pop Music. You can check out their music at vividpopmusic.com. I'm Amanda.
1: And I'm Mohini. And we're part of the Rochester for Energy Democracy campaign of Metro Justice. On the Rochester Public Power Hour, we will share updates on our local movement for energy democracy, interview guests organizing movements for energy democracy across the country and answer questions submitted by you, our audience. We hope that through these conversations, we illustrate the global scale of movements fighting for a more just and sustainable energy system. We also hope to learn from these movements so that our efforts in Rochester can be stronger.
0: Okay, so we're going to get into some nitty gritty today, but I wanna make sure we're also oriented to the big picture. When we look at the current energy system in Rochester, we look at the only company where we can buy our gas and electric from, Rochester Gas and Electric. Well, that sounds simple enough, but behind the scenes, it gets a little more complicated. RG&E is owned by Avangrid, which also owns New York State Electric and Gas, NYSEG, as well as other energy companies in the Northeast. Their parent company is Iberdrola, based out of Bilboa, Spain. So, while our is sending you termination notices, while there's a shutoff moratorium during the pandemic, Avangrid is donating so much money to Mitch McConnell that they are his largest contributor, and Iber second largest donor is making backroom deals with Saudi Arabia and Jared Kushner. Sounds like a nice group of folks who couldn't get by without your $114.54 and need to raise rates, right? When you call RGE to tell them you can't or won't pay that money, they'll give you a hold message that says the health and safety of their customers is their top priority. These facts show us otherwise. That's why New Yorkers across the state are joining together on a utility ratepayer strike to demand cancellation of utility bills during the course of COVID 19. On today's episode, we'll discuss that strike as well as what replacing RGE with a not for profit public utility would look like. And interview a guest that was involved in the fight for a public utility in Berlin, Germany.
1: Let's start with that strike. So, Metro Justice is a member of Public Power New York, a statewide coalition of New Yorkers that aims to bring all for profit investor owned utilities under public, democratic, and local control. Last month, we held a press conference to launch a statewide utilities ratepayer strike. In fact, Amanda and I are striking too. We sure are,
0: Mohini. Can you tell folks more about why we're striking in solidarity with other utility rate
1: payers right now? Well, because the COVID-19 crisis is putting millions of New Yorkers out of work, which means millions of us were unable to pay utilities in May, will be unable to pay in June, and will face draining debt for unpaid bills after being unemployed for months. Plus, if the COVID pandemic and the recent Black Lives Matter uprisings have shown us anything, it's that Black and brown people are disproportionately suffering from the brutality of every aspect of our economic and governing systems. When we're not being straight up killed by police or deported, Black and brown people disproportionately face instability in housing, healthcare, utilities, public schooling, and so many other basic human rights. So part of valuing Black and brown lives also means making electricity, clean water, and heat human rights for everyone. That is why we are calling on Governor Cuomo to cancel utility bills, forgive debt for unpaid bills, issue a mandatory moratorium on shutoffs for at least two years, and tax the ultra-rich their fair share of taxes to pay for it. One speaker at the press conference was Rochester's own Natalie Johnson, a patient care secretary at Strong Memorial Hospital and delegate to her union, 1199 SCIU. Here's a bit about what Natalie had to say.
2: I remember when my children were small, and as a single mother who worked full-time, I had to choose what to pay. It was either rent or gas and electric, and my choice was when, in order for me and my children to have not be on the streets. My family gave us shelter until I paid my r g e bill. I remember that feeling just thanking God for my parents who gave me and my children shelter. No person should ever have to choose between paying rent and r g e especially during this pandemic. Housing and utilities is everyone's human right. The government is doing what they can to bail out businesses who are on the brink of collapse or those who have collapsed. But what about us and our families? who will be sheltering us and our families in this time of need. Together, we must keep fighting and never give up.
0: Natalie just highlighted the choices that so many people shouldn't have to make, but are forced to. And we couldn't agree more that we have to keep fighting. And even with all of this reason to strike, we were given one more when we received termination notices while there is a moratorium on shutoffs with no mention of the fact that there's a moratorium
1: yet another example of how private utilities couldn't care less about people as long as they make their money, pandemic or no pandemic. Numerous ratepayers in Rochester, including myself and Amanda, have received shutoff notices from RG&E for nonpayment, even though they cannot shut people off until September due to COVID. These notices threaten shutoff unless we make a down payment and get on a payment plan.
0: When I received this notice, I obviously called RGE. I mentioned the shutoff moratorium and was told that while my power would not be shut off, the notices are put out using an automated system and so could not be stopped.
1: Which is ridiculous! Automated systems can be turned off! The customer representative at the Public Service Commission, which is the government agency that is supposed to regulate private utilities, also gave me a BS answer. She said that it was the ratepayers' responsibility to call about the shutoff notice, at which point the utility would tell them they're not shutting people off. That's ludicrous for two reasons. One, we pay expensive rates for a service to fulfill a basic human need. The bare minimum standard of providing that service should be to keep customers accurately informed. Secondly, it's straight up false. When I called, RGE tried to get me on a payment plan and didn't mention the ban on shutoffs at all. It was only when I brought it up that she said, oh, yeah, you're right. We won't shut you off right now. Similarly, I just talked to another woman the other day who owes RGE and $2,000 after filing for bankruptcy, and all they told her was that she had to make a $350 down payment and then pay $200 a month or she would get shut off. rg and is threatening people during a pandemic in their most vulnerable time. They're taking advantage of people who may not know about the shutoff moratorium, and will forgo paying for other necessities so that their power isn't turned off. Abuse like this is why it's so important for us to strike. And while today we're striking for immediate relief, like the cancellation of utility bills and forgiveness on debt for unpaid bills since COVID, we won't stop there. The need for public utilities run by the people, for the people, is more evident than ever. So we're going to keep fighting, even after this pandemic is behind us, for public ownership of our utilities so that we are never at the mercy of distant shareholders or a governor to take care of our people ever again. So if you're struggling to afford your utility bills or if you can't afford your utility bills but want to strike in solidarity with those that can't until we win relief, sign our pledge online at bit.ly slash can't pay utilities. You can also share your story with us by emailing us at rockpublicpowerhour@metrojustice.org. at metrojustice.org.
0: Okay, now that we have a glimpse of our current corrupt system, let's pivot to better understanding how we can create the public utility we clearly need. The process of how a public utility is created is something we've gotten some questions about, so I'm going to give a quick overview of the steps we have to take and where we are in that process. Step one, a feasibility study. This requires experts in all involved fields, particularly engineering and finance, to look at the current system and the system we are proposing to see what it would take to make that transition and what costs would be associated with doing so. We currently have a working group that is looking at how to structure the feasibility study and reaching out to professionals in the Rochester area to discuss their involvement. Step two, Write a ballot measure for referendum to authorize a public utility. While this officially has to come from the city's corporation council, as is common practice, we have drafted a ballot measure that incorporates what we want to see in a public utility. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Step three, send the measure to referendum. Through either city council or a petition, the measure has to get onto the ballot. Step four, win the referendum. The people come out and vote, yes, we want a public utility. Step five, acquire the grid from RGE. This is where David meets Goliath. In this step, the value of the infrastructure is assessed and an attempt at negotiating a purchase price between the city and RGE is made. From existing cases around the country, we know that no agreement will be made and the city will have to take RGE to court to get a condemnation to impose a final price. If you're thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot of work, you're right. We'd love your help in the fight. Email us at rockpublicpowerhour at metrojustice.org to get involved. Next up, you've asked, what do you propose Rochester's public utility would actually look like? I'm so glad you asked. We envision a cooperative governance structure where ratepayers have a say in how the public utility operates there would be a democratically elected board composed of representatives from each of the four city council districts, as well as seats for labor and climate science representation. As we do this work, there will be other stakeholders who will want or should have a seat at the table, but there will always be a majority democratically elected board members who are accountable to the ratepayers. Community power forums will be required to gather input from the public, Rates need to be fair and affordable for everyone. We want to see a green energy mandate that requires that the utility relies solely on renewable energy and is carbon neutral by 2030, investing in public or cooperatively owned renewable energy projects whenever possible. Surplus revenue after performing any necessary maintenance should be spent on initiatives that work toward meeting this goal. An example would be housing upgrades that not only make them more efficient, reducing the demand for energy, but also make them safer through the removal of toxic building materials. The transition to clean, affordable energy must be just for energy workers. Utility workers will be unionized and will be represented on the board by a member they elect. Existing contracts would be honored and funding for job training and development would need to be provided, preventing layoffs. We are continuing conversations with impacted unions, including United Auto Workers, several locals of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and we're in the process of reaching out to the public sector unions and gas pipe fitter unions. I hope that that gives you a clearer map of where we're headed and how we plan to get there.
1: We are now going to take a short break before interviewing today's guest, Michelle Wenderlich. We hope you enjoyed this song by The Coup until then.
2: Waiting on the trip to how to get it percolate. You working, you while we happy just to work a day, but I'm to slap until my blood or suck a late elasticity. Did they cut off your electricity? Did you scream and yell explicitly? Force the boss into complicity.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the Rochester Public Power Hour. We're here today with our guest, Michelle Wenderlick. Michelle was involved in a referendum campaign for a public utility in Berlin, Germany, about 10 years ago. They then moved back to the US to pursue a PhD on municipal utility efforts in Minneapolis. Welcome, Michelle.
3: Thank you, good to be here.
1: Let's start with learning more about how you got involved with efforts for public power. Michelle, how and why did you get involved in the Berlin Energy Roundtable in community power in Minneapolis?
3: Yeah, great. I guess proper starting point would be that I got politicized really during my undergrad in the early 2000s around anti-war and ultra-globalization issues, and then around climate justice issues starting around 2007. And I became active in a climate justice group in Berlin. I was living in Berlin at the time that was oriented around uh, anti-capitalist climate issues and systemic questions about what we really needed to change if we were actually going to have a socially just energy transition. And then I ended up doing a master's in public policy and looking at a lot of participatory democracy issues around water. And so when the campaign in Berlin came around, it was exactly the things that my group had been looking at and that I was also really interested in. So I was really excited about it. One commonality we have observed among public
1: power movements in the US is that they often arise to address climate change and other issues of environmental justice. So what precipitating events led to the formation of Berlin's public power movement? What issues in the
3: community was it trying to address? A number of them, and I would say that climate change and a just energy transition was forefront among them. But some of the context issues at the time was that there was a really strong budding movement against privatization in general and against neoliberalism in general in Berlin. And we had just come off of a successful referendum attempt around the water utility in Berlin as well. And so it was a tactic that was in the air and an issue that was in the air. Also, that our energy concession was coming up. That was important as well. And there was a lot of discussions around energy transition at the time. This was right after Fukushima happened, which is a major political moment, especially in Germany, that hit off the kind of recommitment to closing down nuclear facilities at the time. And so a lot of groups were scared that would lead to an increasing reliance on coal and also just could see that if we wanted to have a decentral and socially just energy transition, that wasn't going to happen Um, in any of the ways that had been approached before. So it was really um, a couple groups that had been thinking about direct democracy and also the fight against privatization, which in Berlin, the energy utility had been privatized relatively recently in 1998. So it was recent memory and it was the wave of neoliberalism of a lot of that happening at the time. But there were multiple groups that were interested in using a referendum and direct democracy to change the vision for what could happen, and one of them being attack. There was also a group that was around climate referendums in general, and also a group called Power Shift, a local NGO. And so they came up with the idea, and then built a big campaign around it. But the idea really was that traditional politics weren't going to give us the vision that we had, and that. Corporations weren't going to either, so we needed to do it ourselves.
1: Awesome, and that vision for why local control and local say is so important has also been very central to you know our work in Rochester. So it's interesting to see these parallels between Rochester, and New York here, and in Berlin. You've began to touch on this a little bit, but what were the specific concrete goals of the Berlin Energy Roundtable?
3: Yeah, so the three very large goals were ecological, social, and democratic change and really joining those together. So we wanted to create a public utility that had the explicit goal of a social orientation of reducing energy poverty and having a socially just energy transition, as well as having a goal towards 100% decentral, regional, renewable energy and creating good jobs for people in the area and to do it with direct democracy and also change the idea of what public control meant and what public utilities could be. A lot of groups had seen that this wave of corporatization and loss of control over the priorities of public companies was happening, you know, not just in uh, utilities that were privatized, but also in public ones. So we really wanted to try and advance a different vision and do that through direct democracy. The idea was for a public utility, it was also to buy back the grids. And it ended up being eventually only the electricity grid that the referendum was around. But we were thinking about gas and district energy as well. And that we wanted both the utility and the grid corporation, uh, which are separate in the Berlin system, we wanted them to be organized internally democratically. So with a directly elected council, like a board of directors. So part of it would be half directly elected and half worker representatives and two members of the governing council and have uh, yearly neighborhood assemblies uh, that was kind of one of the sticking points of whether the yearly assemblies could m- actually make decisions or whether they can just bring up issues and it ended up being that they got to the point of bringing up issues but actually we thought still that was an important thing of having that interaction where people can directly find out what's going on and think about things in the moment and suggestions they might have that that could be a really important political tool for engaging people directly. An ombuds kind of office that was part of the board as well and that would bring in suggestions from users and workers, encourage communication, which is actually something that came in from the Porto Alegre water utility as a model and then a right to petition the board for either a survey of members on questions or a meeting with the board about a specific suggestion. And some of the inspiration came from SMUD, Sacramento Municipal Utility District, and some of it, like I said, from other mostly Latin American water utilities that had really prioritized through also participatory budgeting. That's a really interesting example, the Puerto Alegre one. I'm so
1: glad that you elaborated on like the democratic governance models, because that's the first example that we've encountered of another effort for a public utility that is similar to the kind of governance structure we're trying to achieve in Rochester. We similarly want it to be a power cooperative. We want it to have elected representatives and we want there to be seats for worker representation from organized labor. And that's not something that we really found in some of the other examples that we've looked into in the U.S. So it's really, really cool to hear that there was another place that was thinking about a similar governance structure and there is a precedent for it in talking with other public power groups we have encountered a lot of diversity in how they're structured Um, and you've already mentioned you know a few organizations and groups that were a part of this how was the berlin energy Roundtable organized structurally speaking who was involved and how were decisions made
3: i find the berlin example really inspiring because it was an idea for how to organize the utility but it was also the organization of the campaign was really an open platform where anyone could be involved and really tried to make that as broad as possible. So we had basically all decision makings in like open plenary sessions with oftentimes up to 100 people, like 50 or so organizations represented. And we basically drafted the law uh, that we wanted to put up for referendum collectively in those plenary sessions. We would love to hear more about how some of that
1: decision-making in those plenary sessions went and how they were organized. Could you perhaps like tell us a story
3: about one of those plenary sessions? Well, I remember one in particular. So I was at the time a member of, yeah, like I said, a leftist climate group. And I remember drafting some of the priorities for the law and making those decisions in the plenary sessions. And our group and another leftist climate group at the time had really prioritize direct participation, and so we were trying to get the largest, strongest things for that in there, and so we really wanted to try and get neighborhood assemblies as one of the direct democratic mechanisms in there, so we were successful in that. There wasn't just open plenaries, there was also a steering committee, and there were working groups for the different areas, so ecological, democratic, social, and that kind of worked things out, uh, yeah, I mean, they were moderated and there was a campaign organizer and eventually these three NGOs held down some of the moderation, facilitation of the things, but otherwise it was really very open and trying to get a lot of different people involved. There were kind of large environmental organizations and social organizations like renters, rights groups and groups that were working on poor people's issues and unemployment issues and different things like that, and also um, groups that were specifically around democracy and campaigning, organizing, and leftist and direct action groups that were all in there, and it worked pretty well. Absolutely. I mean, you're very clearly illustrating what
1: a massive effort of community involvement and engagement a campaign like this has to be. Uh, you've touched on a little bit about like how you had neighborhood assemblies and had groups involved with all sorts of constituencies involved in this campaign as well. To dive into that a bit deeper, how was community support and involvement in the movement organized? Like who was your base and how did you get them involved? How did you reach them?
3: Yeah, I mean it was a pretty wide, like you said, effort. I mean the main organizing principle was really around signature collection, because that's how the campaign was organized in Berlin. You needed to do lots of signature gathering to first have the idea of a law and then see if the government would pass it. And if they didn't, then you did a second step with even larger to make a referendum. So it was really just getting hundreds, probably thousands of volunteers to do the signature gathering. Some of that was also with support of local political parties. So there was kind of an agreement that political parties could be official supporters, but not members of the organization. And so that did have a role. There was a lot of help from the left party in particular, but also the green party. And also a lot of the literature had signature gathering forms in there. So it could be decentrally organized. So you give someone a flyer and on the back is a form to do 10 signatures they can then send in, which kind of gets people involved in there. We've
1: Talked, you know, about the goals and the vision and how you did all the community base building for this campaign. Could you also give me a roadmap of your strategy to win? What were the actions? Uh, what were the
3: tactics? Who were your targets? Can you walk us through that a bit? So, I mean, mostly it was really focused on the general public because that's who we had to convince. So it was just a lot of talking to people on the streets through the petition gathering that was, like I said, the main modality, but then also a lot of events to get people engaged and think about, you know, what people were thinking of and why this is important. And, you know, not just from the campaign, but from a lot of the supporting members, I think it was over a hundred groups who were official supporters and yeah, like a lot of signs all around the city, the political parties, all had official positions on it. So it was a big part of the election at the time. That was mostly it. It was interesting that the investor-owned utility, Battenfall, they kind of were trying to avoid being part of the discussion. So they took like, we'll just ignore this type of, type of approach, which is, yeah, I think definitely different than what happens in the U.S.,
1: yeah, you're right. You know, as far as our experiences here go, so far it is very unique that the utility in Berlin sort of just wanted to avoid it altogether. Whereas, what we've seen in a lot of the efforts here in the U.S. is that utilities have like a playbook of how to fight municipalization that their shareholders expect them to carry out. Uh, so it's a very, very hostile, you know, relationship between groups trying to get a public utility and the investor-owned utility. Uh, that is currently in that service area. You have mentioned that so central to your mission for a public utility was addressing issues of energy access, of renewable energy, of fair rates, a just transition, and good jobs. What were some of the concrete policies or protocols that you came up with to actually deliver on those goals?
3: We kind of had to work with what was legally. Permissible in the in the draft law, um, so we were talking about things like social tariffs, which we ended up finding were not permissible. But we did have in the law that the utility and the grid would take an explicit stance to minimize energy poverty, and we were talking about tariff rates with a basic amount being free. That was a discussion that, that we were having and raising in communication. I'm pretty sure that that wasn't part of the law either, but uh, just the goal to combat and eliminate energy poverty was the direct mechanism. Also, an explicit orientation around energy efficiency and uh, helping everyone, especially low-income people, address uh, energy efficiency and save money and save energy with an explicit goal of avoiding displacement during that as well. There was also an explicit ban against any coal or nuclear investments at the time, and a goal for 100% decentralized renewable. So I think there was a little bit of wiggle room for needing gas for a little bit, but I think there was a deadline of 100% of when everything had to be 100% renewable and regional. And so that was one of the legal things, as well as the democratic things were also explicitly lined out. And transparency criteria were also in there about what things had to be public, which had been a really big issue around the water utility, too, because they had secret contracts. That was what the referendum was around earlier, was about making those contracts public. Those are some of the official legal things that made it into the law.
1: You have mentioned that, you know, with wanting worker representation on the utility that you were really centering worker interests. What was your relationship with organized labor like throughout this campaign?
3: It wasn't exactly easy. The unions, they had their contracts with the existing utility, and so they couldn't really take a public position around it even if they wanted to. And so there were individuals who were involved in union activities who were also involved in organizing, but we didn't get official endorsements from unions. There was also Uh, an employment guarantee for anyone who is currently employed by the grid or the utility structure to be employed under the same terms and conditions and contracts until 2020, which at the time this would have been happening in 2014. So six-year guarantee of employing everyone, which is a little bit easier in Berlin because the utilities were already organized at the city scale. So it could have just been exactly the same employees who were doing the same work So that was one issue that we were hoping to gain more support with.
1: That is very helpful context for us to keep in mind as we build our relationship with local labor unions um, and statewide labor unions as well. Uh, So thank you for that. This campaign was happening almost a decade ago at this point, so what have been some of the short-term and long-term outcomes of the Berlin Energy Roundtable on things like the energy system as a whole, on the transition to renewable energy, questions of energy justice like access and
3: rates, and on jobs? So I might have to tell you a little bit about the story to have this make some sense. The the campaign was also talking with political representatives um, pretty intensively, but uh, it was organized with a potential thought of having a supportive government in power when it was going to happen, and then it ended up being a non-supportive government. Uh, it's It's a parliamentary system, so there were two parties that were... That were in power at the time and one was explicitly opposed to anything having to do with municipalization and the other one was supportive of the general idea of municipalization but really didn't like any of the other direct democratic things or it could it could talk about the social things but the democratic things it really just found like what is this why would you do this kind of nonsensical and so yeah with that structure in place they very explicitly tried to hinder the campaign and the two biggest most impactful things that they did were to change the date of the election and the context there is that uh, for a referendum to be successful in Berlin you need 25% participation of eligible voters and so you need a specific quorum and it was all set up to fit the timeline of the general election which was happening in September But they basically quasi-illegally shifted the date to a special election um, in November instead, hoping that we wouldn't meet the quorum. And then two weeks before the election, they also created their own public utility, basically to say, you don't need to go forward this referendum. But they put so many barriers on it that it couldn't do anything. So basically, it worked in their favor. People overwhelmingly came out for the referendum and overwhelmingly supported it. So it was 82% of the people who voted, voted in favor, but we didn't meet the quorum by less than 1%. So basically what had happened was that there was a public utility that then existed because they had created it that wasn't empowered to do anything at the time, couldn't sell any energy it didn't produce, and they didn't have any funding to produce energy. So anyway, it took a bit of time, but already the, the government had, been pressured by the campaign to join the concession process and to put in a bid for getting back the grids, which is a separate process from the utility. And so those are actually still under contestation. And one of the things that really affected that was how that government was organized at the time, with some of them actually wanting to remunicipalize and some of them not wanting to remunicipalize. they kind of botched that concession. And so there was a lot of legal challenges because of how it was done. And so that's one of the things that's led to it. So multiple times now it has been awarded to the public utility and public grid company, but it's under legal challenge and probably will be for still some time. And so, yeah, so basically while that government was still in power, not all that much happened but then there was a new government that came to power, which was a more progressive government, a coalition between the social Democrats, the greens and the left party. And they changed the law around the utilities and basically gave it funding and let it do a lot of things that had been limited against before. And were a lot more explicit on their prioritization of public grid ownership as well. So the things that have happened are that there's a very clear priority for public grids. And very clear support for this public utility, but the political moment for a lot of movement to be happening around the public utility itself was lost. So it's a liberalized system where you can choose your energy provider, and so the public utility still doesn't have that many customers or users. But it is a new actor, um, and it is doing a lot of investment in local energy projects, and also doing a lot of retrofits, especially of public buildings and in cooperation with various other public companies. So it is useful that it's there. And the grid company also exists, even though it doesn't have the grid. And that's another actor. And they are really putting out new visions of how the grid can be organized around really having like synergistic cooperation between the electric, the gas, and the district heating grid being a lot more efficient in all of those things. So that's one of the things that has really changed. The political landscape has definitely changed. There's a new actor for local energy transitions. I would say one of the other things that's really changed is that the Berlin campaign was a model for other campaigns, specifically in London and Barcelona, which have gone in different directions. Barcelona is definitely more successful than the London one. So there's that. And then also within Berlin, the referendum idea and this idea of direct democratically controlled public companies has really also expanded. So now it's something that there have been multiple referendum attempts organized around renters issues and having public housing being organized in that form. So that's gaining currency in Berlin, and that's definitely a change. And then, yeah, the Energy Roundtable still exists and they're following the whole political process. There's different things that happened in the political process because of it. But a lot of the things that they've been focusing on is work around energy poverty and around social retrofit policy, which in Berlin was really bad, the policy that was there. Definitely investments have you know made some more jobs, but it has changed the political balance and also the idea of what type of energy system and what type of politics people are thinking of. But I think it is clear that the last government was influential in selectively adopting what parts of the referendum they would hear and hearing the public part, but not the democratic part. The social part is also was okay for them. And that's kind of going forward in what was created as well.
1: Yeah, wow, that sounds like such a visionary project for a public utility that I find it a real bummer that what was essentially political corruption stopped it from being actualized in exactly the way you all wanted it to. But it seems like even though you didn't achieve, you know, your ultimate victory, the effort did lead to a lot of other significant and meaningful victories that did bring Berlin forward and then served as an inspiration for public power movements elsewhere, Uh, not just uh, Barcelona and
3: London, but for us in Rochester as well. I grew up in Canandaigua, so definitely very excited for all the work you're doing. And I'm not sure if it will reach to Canandaigua, but they are also our genie territory. So that would be exciting for me personally. Thanks for all your work.
0: Thanks for tuning in to our show today. We want to hear your comments and questions about our content and public power so that we can address them on our next episode. You can submit your thoughts to us on our Twitter at MetroJustice with the hashtag RockPublicPowerHour or email us at rock public at metrojustice.org. See you next time. Cheers!